three things to note as we get into this. The tabernacle is a portrait, and we saw this last week. It's a portrait of our coming location with Christ. That is, it's a picture of heaven. The Bible tells us it's a copy or a shadow. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 tells us the priests serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for see, quote, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So the tabernacle is a picture of heaven. It's a portrait of our coming location with Jesus. You'll see that tonight even more clearly than I think you did last week. The tabernacle, number two, is also a portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a portrait of the coming location. It's a portrait of our Lord. We saw last week, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant and how that was an amazing picture of Jesus. Here, the acacia wood, that wood that represented his humanity and the gold that surrounds it representing deity. The two together as one thing, the Ark of the Covenant, but two aspects of this one thing like the humanity and the deity of Christ. And Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 says, Christ Jesus being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. We saw also last week the mercy seat. That was the second piece of furniture placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And it covered and kept the law. Something we can't do, but Christ did. He kept the law. He covers the law with mercy for us. Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, the law still exists, and you have two options when it comes to the law. You can either try to keep the law yourself, And you will fail. Or you can allow Jesus to keep the law for you and he has already succeeded. It's our choice. Be people of the law, be under the law, or have the law under the mercy of Christ. So the tabernacle gives us that picture, that picture of Jesus. And you'll see this all the way through. The picture of heaven and you'll see it all the way through. But number three, the tabernacle, and this was new to me this week. God revealed this to me as I sat in Starbucks in downtown Seattle on Monday with my laptop, Cheryl and I were down there and it's just oddest place to, to gain something from the Lord. I told a couple of friends I was sitting down there sitting in the middle of this busy city, all kinds of things going on, all kinds of people going on and I was getting chills. I was choking up at some of what I'm going to share with you tonight and I had no idea who it was really for. I thought it was for us tonight. And it wasn't, and I'll share that with you in a little while. But what I want to do tonight, again, is give you a mental map. I want you to picture, to develop in your heads, a map of the tabernacle. You will, by the time we're done tonight, I'm hoping, be able to not only see the tabernacle and picture it in your mind, but also see all the pieces of furniture, there are seven, and see how it is all a picture of the things we've just shared. Picture of Jesus, picture of heaven, but also a picture of our life in Christ right now. It's stunning. So again, we're going to finish Exodus chapter 25 tonight, but we're not going to read through it as we usually do. We're going to cover the two sections when we get to them as we walk into and through the tabernacle. And I want to seek to understand these things. I'm going to ask that you join me in prayer just one more time before we get to Revelation chapter 4 and then back to Exodus 25. So let's pray again. Father, we approach tonight 
one of the most amazing scenes that is recorded in Scripture. A scene, Lord, that's recorded more than once, but when we see it, it is awe-inspiring. And I pray that we might be inspired. And Lord, I need to say that the only reason we can approach you, we do understand, is by the blood of Christ. The only way we can even view this scene that you have written and laid out for us and truly come to understand it is because you opened the way for us. And we are so grateful and so thankful. Lord, open our eyes tonight and help us to see this anew, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation chapter 4, John, the apostle, is whisked away into a fantastic vision. He is literally drawn up and given a view of the throne room in heaven. And it's mind-boggling. Up until now, in the book of Revelation, so far, John has had a vision of Jesus. And then he's given letters to give to seven churches that are a picture of the whole entire church age the last 2,000 years. It's another study for another time, but it's fascinating. And now, at the beginning of chapter 4, John is whisked away. Watch this. After these things, he says, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately, John writes, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he was sitting with like like a jasper stone and like a sardius in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are (laughs) the seven spirits of God We'll get back to that in a while. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, and were full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Wow! This is not allegory. This is not metaphor. This is a human being doing the absolute best he can to describe something indescribable. John caught up in this vision and he sees the throne room. And he sees the throne and he sees one sitting on the throne. But here's an amazing thing. In John's best possible human expression, we see a greater picture of something that the tabernacle only shadows or copies here on earth. So watch this. The tabernacle. The tabernacle. 
You begin from a human perspective, entering the tabernacle through a door, but you start with the outer courtyard. The outer courtyard that was surrounded the entire tabernacle was a linen fence. It was marked off by a linen fence, and the Bible tells us, and we'll get to this later on in our studies, that it was 100 cubits by 50 cubits. In other words, 150 by 75 feet. So imagine a football field, the sidelines 100 feet by 53 feet, and extend that. It's 150 by 75 feet. And that was the size of the outer court, the outer fence of the tabernacle. Surrounded by linen, rectangular. It was called the tent of meeting. Apparently though, if you think about the size of it, God did not expect the entire company of Israel to meet with him at one time. Because even with the size of a football field, when you've got some three million people, there's not room for everybody in there. Which made me think this week, it's sad but too often true in our world, that God almost doesn't seem to expect the whole company of saints to meet with Him at once. That we often get kind of distracted, there are other things to do. And so at any given time in the court of the tabernacle, the outer courtyard, the whole company of Israel would never be in there all together at once. In fact, God's people will never be all together gathered worshiping Him until that wonderful day when we're drawn up into heaven. And then we're not going to want to be anywhere else. But the outer courtyard, the tent of meeting... And I wonder, and we again began to talk about Sabbath and, and this, this idea of Sabbath and finding our resting God. It, it keeps coming up. It will, it will come up quite a bit, I think, in the next few weeks for all of us. But I wonder, is it possible that part of the reason God invites us to Sabbath is not about us. It's about His great desire to be with us. That he created the tent of meeting as a place to say, come, come in and, and be inside. Come closer. I, I want you near me. But it wasn't big enough again for everyone at once. It's amazing to think that God actually desires that we join Him, that we be near Him, that we be with Him. Well, inside the, the outer courtyard, again, we're talking the outer courtyard, don't go too far in yet. But the first thing you would see, you'd walk in the door of the outer courtyard and directly in front of you, first thing that would catch your eyes is a bronze altar. The bronze altar. It was on the bronze altar that all the sacrifices were made. That the animals that God required were sacrificed and the blood would pour out all around that bronze altar. And that sat right there, first thing in your vision, as you enter into the outer courtyard of the tabernacle. Now you won't find this in the heavenly tabernacle that we just read about. There's no need because the sacrifice has already happened. And that sacrifice was Christ on the cross. So there is no bronze altar in the heavenly tabernacle. But there is in the earthly one because the sacrifices continued day in and day out until, until that time when Jesus would be the sacrifice once and for all. But the second thing, directly behind the bronze altar, you'd have to go around the bronze altar to get to it, would be what's called the bronze laver or the bronze sea. The Bronze Sea. This was a place where the priests ceremonially, ceremonially would wash their hands. They would sacrifice on the altar and they would get blood all over their hands. And they'd have dust all of the, over their feet. And before they could go into the next part of the tabernacle, they had to be sanctified. They had to be cleaned. So they would go to the Bronze Sea and they would wash their hands. And it's very interesting, by the way, a little side note. The Bronze Sea in and of itself is a picture of Christ. Each one of these things, by the way, when we come back in a few weeks, we will take one at a time as we study through Exodus. We'll look more closely at the Bronze Sea. But just a little tidbit for you. The Bronze Sea is an amazing picture, again, of Jesus. Why? 
because in the Bronze Sea you would see actually two types of liquid water and blood blood and water as the priests would wash that pure water that would be in the Bronze Sea for them to wash would wash off the blood and there would be that mixture of blood and water and what was it that came out of the side of Christ when the Spirit pierced him blood and water Now a whole different study, and you can do this and I would encourage you to, would be to go and look at the tabernacle and compare every single piece of furniture in the tabernacle. It speaks of seven different aspects of Jesus and his sacrifice. It's stunning. We're not going to do all of that tonight. I'll point out a few things as we go. But this is interesting to me because the bronze laver was also called the bronze sea and Revelation 4.6 from where we just studied tells us before the throne there was something like a sea of glass like crystal. The bronze sea is a representation in the tabernacle of the sea of glass that is before the throne of God in heaven. Our coming location in Christ also then has a sea before it. Not a bronze sea for sanctifying, but a sea of glass for the sanctified that is before the throne. Well, you're in the outer courtyard. You walk up, first you see again the bronze altar. You go around that. The next thing you'll see is the bronze laver or bronze sea. And then you come to another fenced off area within the tabernacle. And this is called the holy place. The holy place was another inner courtyard that was again surrounded by a linen fence. And the inner courtyard was roughly 10 cubits by 30 cubits. That means 15 feet wide by 45 feet long. And this was inside the tabernacle. Now, anybody in Israel could come into that outer courtyard of the men. The men could. I'm sorry, ladies. That was the way it was set up. We'll talk about why in another time. But all of the men of Israel could come into the outer courtyard. Only the priests could then go the next step into the holy place. So you walk into the holy place, through that screen, into the next part. And the first thing you would see over on your right... On the right side of this little linen room, 45 by 15 feet, is called the table of showbread. The golden table of showbread. Now go back to Exodus 25 and let's read the description. Exodus 25. We'll pause for a moment at the table of showbread and look at this. Beginning in verse 23. Exodus 25, 23. God says, You shall make a table of acacia wood two cubits long and one cubit wide and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a gold border around it. You shall make for it a rim of a handbreadth around it and you shall make a gold border for the rim around it. You shall make four gold rings for it and put the rings in the four corners which are on its four feet. The rings shall be close to the rim as holders for the poles to carry the table. So the table of showbread, like the Ark of the Covenant, would have four rings and poles going through it and would be carried on the shoulders of the priests as they went from place to place. This was God's design for how this was to be moved. He goes on and says in verse 28, You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold so that with them the table may be carried. You shall make its dishes and its pans and its jars and its bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. The golden table of showbread. You're now in the holy place. The outer courtyard behind you. The bronze sea. And behind that the bronze altar. You're in the holy place. And now standing to the right at the table of showbread. 
Now again, the table like the ark was of acacia wood and gold. And just like the ark, it again speaks of the deity and the humanity of Christ. The deity, the gold. The humanity, the acacia wood, speaking of Jesus. And on this table was placed twelve loaves of what was called the showbread. The showbread was replaced once a week. And when the priest replaced the showbread once a week... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me tell you something else. The, the uh, table of showbread was two cubits in length. Everything that God designed here was on purpose. So why two cubits for the table of showbread? Was it just on a whim? Let's make it, oh, yay long. Or is there something specific behind it? In biblical numerology, if you're interested in studying these things, numbers have specific meaning. We've talked about in the past the number 3, the number 7, the number 12, the number 13. These are all numbers with meaning. The number 2 in the Bible has interesting meaning as well. It's the number of union or agreement. Amos chapter 3 verse 3 tells, tells us, Can two men walk together except they be agreed? Unless they be in agreement. The idea of two, two people coming together in agreement, two coming together in union, in intimacy, two people coming close. And when the priests came to the table of showbread, they came in agreement with the Father. And so do we. What do you mean? The table of showbread, and I want you to think about this for a moment, is a picture of Christ because of the bread, but it's different than the picture of Christ in manna that we've seen before. Manna is a bread, and Jesus said, hey, that's like me. I'm like the manna that came down from heaven, the bread of life which comes down from heaven. But manna is a picture of the life giver, Jesus being the bread of life. John 6.51 says, I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's what manna pictures. The show bread also pictures Jesus, but in a different way. It pictures Jesus as the life sustainer. Well, what's the difference? Life giver, life sustainer. The manna is a picture of, of what brings us to Christ. That once we come to Christ, He gives us life. We have eternal life with Him when we choose Him, accept Him as Lord. But the showbread is a picture of the ongoing sustenance and nurture that Christ gives us. Matthew 4.4 4 says, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The showbread is sustenance. It's bread for the priesthood of believers. The showbread is also called the bread of presence because it's only in the presence of the Lord that we are sustained. And again, here we share this special bread in, in two ways. Two ways. Remember, I said just a moment ago that when the priests came to the table of showbread, they came in agreement with the Father, and so do we. And each week, when it was time to replace the showbread, what they did was they came to the table, they ate the showbread, and they drank wine with it. Bread and wine. Which speaks, of course, of communion. And that's what we do. We come to the table. We do it here at the bridge weekly. You can do it more often. But we come to the table... The Lord's table, the table of communion. And we share and we come in agreement or in union with the Lord. What agreement? Well, when we come to take communion, we are in agreement with the Lord that we need the Lord. That He is our sustenance. That He is the one who grows us, who pulls us through. He is our ongoing source of sustenance. Which is why Jesus says in 1 Corinthians 11.24, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
You need to remember me. Why, Lord? Why, why do we have to keep doing this thing called communion and keep remembering you? Because I am your sustenance. And as long as you're remembering me, as long as you're coming into my presence, as long as you're considering me, I will sustain you. Our problem in the Christian life is when we wander away from the table. When we get away from his sustenance. When we try to sustain ourselves on other things. And those are the times when we begin to feel weak. And when the enemy can attack. But we also, by the way, dine with the Lord, not just at the table of communion, but we dine with Him by feeding on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We are sustained by the word. Now you may ask, okay, so where's the table of showbread in heaven? Where is it? We read through Revelation 4, and if you were watching closely, there's no table of showbread there, is there? Well, Jesus is, He is the bread. The bread of the presence. Which is a very interesting phrase. It's called the bread of the presence. The very presence of God. So the tabernacle showbread is simply a shadow of Jesus. Then we get, after that, the showbread, the table of showbreads on the right hand side as we continue to stand in the holy place. On the left hand side, against the other wall, is the golden lampstand. Now this one you're going to have to lock in. It's challenging thinking, but it's pretty awesome. Verse 31. The Lord says, You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Six branches shall go out from its sides. Three branches of the lampstand from its one side and three branches of the lampstand from its other side. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in the one branch, a bulb and a flower, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms in the other branch, a bulb and a flower. So for six branches going out from the lampstand. You got this picture real clear, don't you? Do you? (laughs) Stick with me here. Verse 34. And in the lampstand, four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers. A bulb shall be under the first pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it, for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and their branches shall be of one piece with it. All of it shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. The lampstand was not acacia wood at all. It was solid gold, pure gold. Remember that. Then you shall make its lamps seven in number. And they shall mount its lamps so as to shed light on the space in front of it. Its snuffers and their trays shall also be be of pure gold. It shall be from a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. See that you make them after the pattern for them which was shown to you on the mountain. Now that's a handful to swallow and try to get a picture of. Just picture this, a menorah. Think about the Jewish menorah. Seven candles on it. Now, over to the right, table of showbread. Over to the left, the golden lampstand. And the golden lampstand was a shaft of pure gold that came up and a candle that sat on that in this cup and this almond blossom and all the description that God gave. A candle in the middle. Out of either side then would come six more Six more branches, each of them having a candle, so a total of seven candles on this golden lampstand. Okay, everybody got that? So you've got the golden lampstand, table of showbread. Both of them gold. The light of the candles would make this awesome. As you stood in there in the darkness with nothing but a pure gold table and a pure gold candle stand and then a pure gold altar of incense and nothing but flames of fire dancing on the gold, it would have been a stunning sight for the priests who went inside. Now, 
This is one of the more powerful pictures in the tabernacle for he explains something that we could not possibly have understood otherwise. This whole thing, again, was a pure goal which does not speak of humanity and deity. It only speaks of deity. It speaks of one aspect of the Lord, of the deity of God. I'll explain this. But these candles lit again the inside of the holy place and the significance is stunning. Now I want you to flip over to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Now this could be tricky, but watch it carefully. Follow carefully. And jot down any questions you have that we can cover at the end if you need to. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. The two verses we're about to read are the reason why, well, part of the reason why I think a lot of people approach the book of Revelation and just say it's too hard to understand. You get four verses in and it's so mind-blowing already that you just put the book away. Just close it up. Watch this. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The seven spirits before the throne. What in the world is that? I mean, I knew there was a trinity and I have enough trouble with that. But seven spirits? What is that? Is that like angels? Or is this like seven different kinds of beings? What is that? John goes on and he says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Christ reveals something here, gang. In, in this intro paragraph, John again, read this with me again. He says, grace you and peace from, number one, him who is and who was and who is to come. John is speaking of the Father. Skip down in verse 5. He says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Okay, Father and Son. Who else is in the Trinity that's missing there? The Holy Spirit. The seven spirits that, be, that are before the throne is the Holy Spirit. This is who John is talking about. Well, how do you know that, Rick? Follow along and follow closely. This is, the seven spirits before the throne are the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit of Christ Jesus. Now, if that's confusing for you, because we tend to think of this, the Holy Spirit and Jesus as separate, they're not. They're not. The Bible, Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit. But Paul goes on and he says, But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong in him. Paul uses the reference to the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ interchangeably. Same Spirit. Same God. So when you speak of the Holy Spirit, you are talking about the Spirit of Christ. As much as you're talking about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is that person in the Godhead, in the Trinity. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. What does that mean? That means that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, was on the prophets of old. That it was Jesus' own Spirit that was compelling the prophets to search the Scriptures to see when Jesus would come. Um, isn't that cool? Jesus was telling Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. Jesus was saying, search the scriptures, Isaiah. His spirit was imploring, find out what's going to happen. You're going to talk about my coming, Isaiah, the spirit of Christ. But you might say, okay, well, if that's the Holy Spirit, this, these seven spirits before the throne, why seven spirits? 
And why are there seven candles on the golden lampstand? If this is all supposedly, as I think this is where we're going, a picture of the Holy Spirit. Because the seven aspects of the seven candles and the seven spirits speak specifically of the seven aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Well, where do you find that? Flip in your Bibles to to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. When we look in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2 we find out some amazing things about the Holy Spirit. Now the context of Isaiah 11 is Jesus. Again Isaiah is prophesying about Messiah, about Christ. And in the second verse listen to what he says about the Spirit that will be on Christ. He says verse 2 The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And the delight And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So verse 2 again. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Look closely. Seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. You can count them up. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear. That's only six, isn't it? So where's the seventh? The very first line, the Spirit of the Lord is the seventh. Now watch this. Think about the golden candle stand. The golden lamp stand. Think about this. What I described to you in the Bible says, a single shaft that came up with a candle in the middle. And then shooting off of that were six more branches. Six branches and a single candle in the middle for a total of seven. But what we have in Isaiah is the Spirit of the Lord, which we see a representation. That that first aspect of the Lord is this Spirit is the Lord's Spirit. That middle candle. And then six more coming out, which are the Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength and knowledge and fear of the Lord. Seven altogether that are the aspects of the ministry and the person of the Holy Spirit. And so someone reading Revelation would have seen, would have understand this, would have connected with this. As John wrote it, anyone who was a student of the Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophets could have said seven spirits before the throne. Wait a minute. The spirit that was on Christ, Isaiah 11 verse 2, and goes directly back this and connect it and understand. John is talking about the seven spirits before the throne. Now go back to Revelation again, chapter 1. And I said it's a little different tonight, a little more flipping than usual. We're not just in one place. But in Revelation chapter 1, look again at verse 4 and 5. He says, to, uh, From him who was and who is and who is to come, that's the Father, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that's the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. All three members of the Trinity right here. But there's something amazing that's a bit further down. And I just, I've got my scriptures wrong here. Just a second. Look down at verse 20. Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. There's an intimate connection here that's fantastic. He says, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What is John saying here? What is Jesus explaining here? He is explaining a profound connection 
the connection is between the Holy Spirit and the church. For the golden lampstand in the tabernacle speaks of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus here in Revelation says, hey, these seven lampstands are seven churches. But what happened on the day of Pentecost? What happened? Acts chapter 2. What happened to start the church? The Holy Spirit came upon the apostles. And from that point on, the church spread as the Holy Spirit spread out among people. As God developed His church, His church is made up of those who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. You cannot have the church without the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work. As a matter of fact, some of you have been in situations, have been in places where you have seen the Holy Spirit remove Himself from a church and the results are dire. You cannot have a church without the Holy Spirit. Which is why we talk so much at the bridge about learning to listen to the Holy Spirit. It's why in our elders meetings we sit around and when we start to get off in too much of a business direction we have to stop. Say, wait, have we prayed about this? Is this what God wants us to do? This is a learning curve gang that's huge. And in my life, in the last year and a half, my understanding of the Holy Spirit is completely different than it was over a year ago because I'm in a place where we've got to rely on Him or not. If this is going to continue, it's got to be of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus says right here, you can't have the church without the Holy Spirit. There's an intimate connection that is so tight and so powerful that even the church is referred to as a lampstand, which is the picture of the Holy Spirit. Got that connection? Well, there's more. Psalm 46, verse 10 says, Cease striving and know that I am God. That's probably the best translation of that verse. You've heard it probably said, Be still and know that I am God. But the best translation when you look at the words is, Cease striving. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. Why is it so important that we cease striving? Because all our plans, all our strategies, all our programs, all our human ideas will lead us into darkness without the light of the golden lampstand, which is the light of the Holy Spirit leading us and in our lives. If we don't have the Spirit, we do not have light. And we will not see where we are going. And gang, the world is about to be thrust into a darkness that it has never known. Because the golden lampstand is going to be removed. Flip to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and I want to read this to you share with you just a little bit more the depth of this connection the golden lampstand representing the Holy Spirit and that connection the Spirit has with the church listen to this and watch it 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1 I'm going to read 10 verses follow closely now remember the churches like Thessalonica they received these letters from Paul and they didn't break it down with a commentary they just read it They just read and sought to understand, and that's what we're going to do. Reading verse 1, 2 Thessalonians, it's important stuff. Paul says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to Him, our gathering together to Him. He's speaking of Jesus coming at the time of the rapture when He will remove the church. He says, you, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What's going on here? In Thessalonica, 
This is a year or so after Paul has planted that church. And he's writing back to him and he's saying, Hey, listen, you guys got a fake letter. You've got some phony teaching. Someone has told you that the day of the Lord has already happened and you are in the tribulation period. You've missed the rapture. You've missed being taken out. And Paul, with Thessalonica especially, was very specific when he planted that church to tell them about the end times as we see from other scriptures. But they were confused. They were worried. So Paul says, hang on. Don't think that you got a letter from us. You got something false, phony. It wasn't real. We want to talk to you. I want to share something with you so you understand about when the church is going to be taken and what that's going to look like. And now he goes on. Verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. This is important. Apostasy, the word, has two meanings. It means either the falling away, which is how we tend to use it in our language. We talk about that the church in the end times, and the Bible says, will apostatize, it will fall away. However, the word apostasy in the original Greek also means removal from. So which one is it, Rick? Is it the the falling away comes first or the removal from comes first? I think it works both ways. It's both. That the church will fall, but the church will... will, The church... (laughs) The human institution that we know of as the church is going to fall away. The real church, which is only truly known by God, it's the true members of His church that God has called, which I believe includes every one of us here in this room, so you can relax. That church will be taken out. Read on. It says, Unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He is speaking about Antichrist. He goes on and he says, Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And this will happen. Verse 5. Do you not remember, Paul says, that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things. And now listen, this is what I wanted to get to. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. Who's he? Who are we talking about? Antichrist. Okay. Okay, you with me here? You know what restrains him, Antichrist, right now, so that in his time he will be revealed. Something right now, currently, from the time Paul wrote this even to present day, is restraining the move of Antichrist. Something has been keeping Satan's plan from fully being realized. What is that something? Read on. He says, verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, so as to be saved. There's your answer. Look again, listen again to verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness. It's already at work. Satan's already at work. He's already doing things. However, he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. What is that talking about? It is talking about, Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit and the church. Because remember, you cannot have the church without the Holy Spirit. And I said a few minutes ago that the world is about to be plunged into a period of darkness unlike any ever before. Why? Because at the time of the rapture of the church, when the church is called up and taken out of the world, so at that same time, 
the Holy Spirit will go to. Right now, in the world in which we live, the world, Christian or non-Christian alike, receives the light of the Holy Spirit. Even non-believers currently get some of the light that comes from the Holy Spirit. Through the working of His ministry in the church, the world is blessed. There is aid that goes to tsunami victims. There are hospitals. There are people attempting to love as dark as the world may seem. There's still good in the world. And it's because of the exertion of the will of the Holy Spirit. Pull that out. And we will return to a world very quickly. Exactly like the time of Noah. When Noah and his family were the only ones even worth saving. The church and the Holy Spirit. So closely unified. When you take the Holy Spirit, the church is going to go. When you take the church, the Holy Spirit will go. Well, well, so then how during the tribulation, if the Holy Spirit is not here, is God still going to do His work in the world? Oh, He will. But He'll do it like He did before the days of the church, before the advent of the church when the Holy Spirit was poured out on people. It will be more like in the old days when only certain people could find the truth. As a matter of fact, God even says, and this is stunning, that there will be a deluding influence, verse 11, on those who are, quote-unquote, left behind. The world is going to go dark because the golden lampstand will disappear. When the Spirit goes, so goes the church. And when the church goes, so will go the Spirit. John 4, 8 tells us, Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You go where the Spirit goes. You follow where He leads. You stop when He says stop. You go when He says go. Listening to the Spirit is one of the most important things we can learn to do as Christians, as followers of Christ. Again, a day is coming. Intimately connected, where the church is intimately connected to and blown by the Spirit, will be removed by the Spirit and with the Spirit from this earth in what we have called and know of as the rapture. So, still in the holy place. Now, back down to earth for a few minutes. Into the holy place. We've looked at the table of showbread to the right. We've looked over to the left at the candle, the golden lampstand, which speaks of the Holy Spirit. Directly in front of us is the golden altar of incense. This won't be talked about until Exodus chapter 30. But the golden altar of incense now is connected to the veil. But in this small room called the Holy Place, you have those three articles of furniture. The golden altar of incense, again, we're going to talk about more in the future. But you may ask the question, back to Revelation 4, where's the golden altar of incense in heaven? Where do we see that? Revelation chapter 8, verse 3 tells us, Another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer. And much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints in the golden altar which was before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. There is an altar of incense in heaven. And the one in the tabernacle is but a shadow, a copy of the real thing. You really think that this stuff exists in heaven, these pieces of furniture? Absolutely I do. I absolutely do. Why? Because the Bible says it does. And maybe that's simplistic. Call me a simpleton, but I would rather walk as a simpleton and believe the words of this book than try and allegorize them or metaphoricize them, or if that's a word, make them say what they don't necessarily say. Now, and this is important, we're almost done, stick with me here. Between the holy place and the most holy place, there was a great veil of separation. 
The priests could come into the holy place, but they could not go into the most holy place. Only one, once a year, was allowed to go behind the veil into what is called the Holy of Holies. You have three sections to the tabernacle then. The outer court, the holy place, and the holiest place. The Holy of Holies is 10 cubits square. That's literally 15 square feet in size. Once a year the high priest could go in there to pray before the Lord, to worship the Lord, and to ask for for the sins of Israel to be forgiven. And as we've seen, the Holy of Holies contains two pieces of furniture. If you were to go behind the veil, you would see what we talked about last week, the Ark of the Covenant, and you would also see there on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the Mercy Seat. The mercy seat. And God said, Exodus 25:22, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony. The mercy seat in heaven is the throne of God itself. That is the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the shadow, the copy, the representation in the tabernacle on earth of the true seat of mercy, which is the throne. And it's here that the church will finally be taken to be with Christ. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So there it is. The heavenly original of the earthly tabernacle copy is the throne. Now, if the ark and the mercy seat are shadows of heavenly originals, then wouldn't you expect some similarities in the description in heaven of the throne room, of the throne of God? Wouldn't there be something about the throne of God that that would be pictured in the mercy seat? And that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. You might wonder, are there cherubim? Because we know on top of the mercy seat there are a couple of cherubim, so you would think that around the throne room would, would there be cherubim? Revelation chapter 4 verse 6 tells us in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature like a lion, the second like a calf, the third had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Why all four of these faces? Totally different message for another time, but I'll tell you afterwards if you want to stay around and ask. It's very interesting. But the four living creatures, each one of them had six wings and full of eyes all around, and day and night they would not cease saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Cherubim. Well, how do you know they're cherubim? Does it say cherubim in the book of Revelation? No, it doesn't. So how do you know they're cherubim? Well, you go back and you read the book of Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 1, and we won't do it right now, but you can read that chapter, it names the same, it describes these same creatures flying around the throne room. Flying above the throne. With the same four faces described, and the wings, and the eyes, and everything. It's all there. Ezekiel 1, you go, wow, Ezekiel's talking about the same exact thing, these same exact beings that John is talking about. But still, how do you know they're cherubim? If you read on in Ezekiel, you get to chapter 10, verse 15, and Ezekiel finally names them for us. He says, then the cherubim rose up. They are the living beings that I saw. And so we know that these beings, these four interesting creatures around the throne in Revelation chapter 4 are cherubim. And isn't it interesting that on top of the mercy seat, that's exactly what God placed in the tabernacle. Cherubim. Because the mercy seat is a picture of the throne of God. Psalm 89 verse 14 tells us righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and the truth go before you. 
And can you see how the tabernacle is truly a shadow of the actual place of worship in heaven? And we've only touched on a few things looking at this so far tonight. But let me backtrack and make sure of something real quickly here. Do you have the picture in mind of the tabernacle, the outer courtyard, the bronze altar, the bronze laver, the the holy place, the next tent inside, with the table of showbread to the right, the golden lampstand, the altar of incense straight in front of you, and the large veil. And then through that veil you get into the holy of holies, and all that's in there is the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat. That's the tabernacle. That's it. Simple. Beautiful. Easy to remember. Three areas. And you wander through and see all these seven pieces of furniture. But you know what's amazing? Let me take this picture of the tabernacle and stand it up on end for you. And let's imagine that this is the tabernacle right here. And we walk into the door of the tabernacle and we get to the bronze altar. Then we get to the bronze laver. Then we go into the holy place. And over on this side is the table of showbread. And over on this side is the golden altar. And then right up here, now we have the altar of incense. And in the Holy of Holies, we have the Ark of the Covenant. Do you realize what you've just seen? You've seen a cross. God has the furniture set up in the shape of a cross. Speaking of what would come. Speaking of how Jesus would fulfill all of this. Amazing. Incredible. This speaks of Christ. It speaks of heaven. But I said something else, and this is the most important thing to hear tonight. That the tabernacle not only speaks of our coming location in heaven and our Lord Jesus Himself, it speaks of our life in Christ. It's an amazing picture of coming in and being with Jesus. And listen to this. We're going to end on this tonight. In the courtyard. And by the way, watch how your own life in Christ unfolds here. And you determine, you decide, think about where are you when it comes to the tabernacle as a representation of your life in Christ. Listen to this. In the courtyard. In the courtyard. You're on the inside. You have become a part of the body, the fellowship, the family. You're in Christ when you come into the courtyard. The courtyard, by the way, there's a door, a very specific door on that, on the tabernacle on the outside that you go through. And what did Jesus say? He said, I am the door for the sheep. You have to come in through me. So you wander in through the door. And what's the first thing you see? Again, it's the altar. The bronze altar of sacrifice. Where you accept Jesus and the sacrifice that he poured out for you. Right behind it is the bronze laver for washing. Where you receive the baptism. Washing by water. Washing of the Holy Spirit. And, and if that's happened in your life, hey, right on. You're on the inside. You're in the courtyard. You're part of the gang. You've actually gone farther than most of the people who are on the outside. Wandering around, doing things, taking care of life, gathering wood. (laughs) You're not out there anymore. Now you're in here. And many people are very content to stay right there. But some, some choose to go deeper. Some will wander on into the holy place. And they, and they engage there in the work of priestly ministry. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says, you are a royal priesthood. The Bible teaches of the priesthood of all believers that once you become a Christian, you're a minister. You're a priest in God's family. 
in God's economy, you are one of those who are created to serve and to minister and to care for the needs of others and to serve the Lord. And that's what the high priest, or not the high priest, but the priest did day in, day out, 24-7. They were in the holy place and they were taking care of the table of showbread. You eat at the table of showbread. You're doing it right now. You're feasting on the word of God. Jeremiah 15:16. Jeremiah said, Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. And so you're eating at that table. And maybe you desire to teach other people. Replenishing the bread on the table. Maybe you're ignited by the lampstand, by the light of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're one who is kneeling at the altar of incense in intercessory prayer for those around you. But as all this is going on, it's the work of ministry. And it's deeper and more wonderful and more special than just hanging outside in the courtyard where everything that's happened is over with. You've done it. You've been washed. The sacrifice has been done. So you go deeper in and the work of the ministry happens. But it's constant. Understand there is one piece of furniture that is not mentioned and that's a chair because the priests never sat down. When they were in there, they were working, man, and they were doing the work of ministry. And it's wonderful, and it's deeper, and it's closer, but some people desire more. Some desire more. Only one person really could. You know, the high priest went into the most holy place, and there he communed, he fellowshiped with God. But only one person. That interests me. Because it speaks of deep intimacy, of a one-on-one relationship with God. One person alone can be in His presence. One person alone can go one-on-one with God. One person alone. And I want you to understand something about this: these three levels of the Christian life. The most holy place is the deepest and highest form of ministry that anybody can aspire to. And we don't seem to understand that because our idea of great ministry is constant work. Doing the work of an evangelist. Doing the work of mission. Doing the work in the church. Constantly serving. Constantly busy. Doing what God has called me to do. That is the highest form of ministry. No, it is not. You remember the story. And I'll just tell it to you quickly. In Luke chapter 10. It's a heartwarming story, a precious story of a family that Jesus goes to visit. Some of his closest friends, three people, Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Lazarus actually isn't even in the story in Luke chapter 10. His sisters are, and it's his house, but he's not there. He's in the outer courtyard. Oh, he's a friend of Jesus. He loves Jesus. He's part of the game, but he's not in this story. He hasn't made it inside. He's in the outer courtyard, a picture of Lazarus there. But Martha is in the holy place. Martha is doing the work of ministry. She's serving. She's working hard. She's cooking the bread. She's making the meal. She's cleaning the house. This is Martha in the holy place. And she's doing good things. And she is serving the Lord. But she's not in the holiest place. Mary is. You remember what Mary was doing, and it was ticking Martha off, which often happens with very, very busy Christians, is those who are more contemplative, who like to sit before the Lord and just just fellowship and commune with the Lord. Well, those who are doing the work of ministry in the holy place are going, come on, there's work to be done out here. Not realizing how important it is what's going on in there. And so Mary, Jesus said, has chosen the best part. Mary has chosen the best kind of ministry. Of ministry. It's, it's God's deepest and greatest desire for us. Listen, if we all 
went into the Holy of Holies, if we all purposed to spend our lives before the Lord, you could not stop the amount of ministry that would take place. But we kind of get stuck in the holy place. Which is better than the outer courtyard. At least stuff's getting done. At least the Lord is being served. But not like He is in the holy of holies. Mary was engaged in the deepest level of Christian ministry that exists. What is that? It is sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's being in sweet communion with Him. Seeking Jesus in the outer courtyard, that's important. Serving Jesus, even better. But sitting at the feet of Jesus is the most holy place. It is the place that God is calling us to. And listen, you may never be able to teach like a Chuck Smith or a Beth Moore. You may never be able to write worship music the likes of Matt Redmond or Darlene Check. That's, by the way, how you say her last name. If you've ever wondered, the girl who wrote Shout to the Lord, it's Darlene Check. It's spelled Z, how, Z-S-C-H-E-C-H. It looks like Zech. But it's Check. So anyway, I thought you might want to know. You may never be an evangelist like Billy Graham or a missionary like a Hudson Taylor or a William Carey. You may never be able to do any of those things. But you can, you can draw closer to God than any of that. What happened when Christ died should not only astound us, it should compel us. For at the time of his death, do you realize what happened? Do you remember what it was that happened? When Jesus died, Matthew 27 verse 50 says, He cried out again with a loud voice. He yielded up his spirit and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two. That dividing veil that said, you can't go through here. You can't come to the holy place. God said, no, now my son has died and the veil is gone and it is wide open. Anybody can enter in at any time to be with me in intimacy like you could not have had before Jesus died. You can. I can. We can choose the greatest, deepest, most wonderful aspect of the Christian life. And I say this for last. I told you earlier that I discovered some of these things and, and the Lord shared a lot of this with me as I studied on Monday morning and I thought, this is going to be great. We'll talk about this Wednesday night. That's what this is for. But that's not what this was for. Yesterday, Les and I went to meet with Stu Corey. And I don't know how many of you know who Stuart Corey is. If you've seen the sign for Corey Propane, you know that that's, there's a connection there. Stuart Corey is 70 years old. Two years ago, this coming September 1st, he was in a biking accident up in Whistler. 70 years old, biking with his kids. This is the kind of man he apparently was. Very active, very outgoing, very young-spirited, out biking, and he had an accident that did spinal cord damage. And now, he lies in a bed, a hospital bed that's in his home, hooked up to machines, helping him breathe, paralyzed from the neck down. The doctor said he would never even speak again, but he talks great. <laughs> and he is still waiting for the day when he can walk. I had no, no idea what I was stepping into. Les just kept telling me, Rick, you got to meet Stu Corey. I want to take you to meet Stuart. you got to meet Stuart. we got to meet him and get, get, get together with him. And I'm like, okay, great. And all Les told me ahead of time was that he was paraplegic. So I'm thinking he's, he'll be a, a guy in a wheelchair. Until I came into the house and headed down the hall... And as I walked into the room, saw the bed, and realized this was much more serious than I had any idea. And we sat down, and we talked, and we shared. 
And it was, I wish you could have been there. I, I can't even describe how wonderful the time was that we spent. Less knows. And I don't, I don't think I've been this encouraged in months by a single individual as I was by Stuart. And it struck me early on in the conversation, it struck me that all of this was for him. Now, I, mind you, have never met this guy before in my life. I didn't know anything about him until he began to tell me his story. All I knew, he was a friend of Les's and I was supposed to meet him. That's it. And as we talked in the beginning of this conversation, God began to nudge me and say, Rick, the stuff about the courtyard, that's for Stuart. I want you to tell him. And I, I was thinking, no. <laughs> I don't know him. Why would I tell him this, Lord? And I kept hoping that Les would. Thinking maybe God will put it off on Les and he'll bring it up. And Les opened his Bible and went, good, he's going to do it. And I looked over and he was in the Psalms. I'm like, that's not where it is, Les. It's somewhere else. you got to tell him about the tabernacle. you got to tell him about it. Because, folks, this is why. What I saw with this man who was lying completely paralyzed in bed, his hands in front of him, not able to move anything but his face. I saw a man in the Holy of Holies. I met a man who resides in the most holy place. There's nowhere else he can go. He described a, a point when all this was happening and he was still in the hospital where he said, he said, I don't know how else to describe this, but the glory of the Lord flooded the room. And he hasn't left me since. This is a man who's had Bible study in his home for over 40 years, who walked with the Lord for, for 56 years, something like that. Who knew Jesus, but who had apparently never been in the holy place, the most holy place, for long enough to recognize that that was where he was until he lost complete physical ability. And now, as he lies in his bed, looking out his window, he's got a beautiful view. But he is with the Lord all the time. You could, I mean, you just sensed it. You walk into the room, and it was full of the Lord. And it struck me that here's a guy who right now is doing more effective and more powerful ministry because of where he is than he could possibly have done in the holy place when he had the use of his arms and his legs. Now, we're praying for Stuart, and I would love to see God completely restore him physically and heal him. But you know what? Right now, he is in the holy of holies. And I told Les as we were driving home, this sounds weird, but I said, you know what? I'm jealous. I was jealous of him. As we sat in that room and I thought, to be able to be there in that place with the Lord day in and day out. And so I shared this with him. I said this whole tabernacle thing, the outer court and the holy place and the holy of holies where, where Stuart, you reside and... And the Lord wants you to stay there with Him. And if He restores your legs and the use of your arms again in the future, He just doesn't want you to use your legs to wander back into the holy place to ministry. He wants you here. Because what you do here, this is what matters. This is the place that we all aspire to be. And I'll tell you one last thing. Stuart said this as we were talking. He said, he said, I have read and read the book of Job. He said, because Job's story is so similar to my story. He said, I had it all. You know, I had financial strength and security, and I had family, and I had wealth, and I had everything going for me. It was all great, and I was a believer in the Lord. I was walking with the Lord. It was all good. And then this happened, and I lost everything. But when I lost everything, I gained everything. 
And he said, at the end of the book of Job, Job says something. He says in some translations, and I didn't find this translation yet, but what he said was so powerful. Stuart said, I have had the blessing. Now I have the Lord. I've had the blessing. Now I have the Lord. Job 42 verse 5 Job does say this I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eyes see you this is what the message of the tabernacle is this is why as we saw last week God started with the ark of the covenant he started at the heart because that's where he wants us he wants to draw us back close to his heart in intimacy in fellowship and my friends he's waiting for us there